In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. gentlemen welcome to sunday the psychedelic round table we're coming at you live uh it's george george and paul um we are you caught us right in the middle of paul explaining the silo cup paul can you explain to people what the silo cup is uh well i mean as best as i can but it's okay. um it's a it's a like a like remember the um cannabis cup you know amsterdam Yep. Would have it every year and they would, you know, test, you know, weed and for potency and taste and all the rest of that stuff. Well, they do the same thing up in Oakland every year. And it's put on by, I think, by a guy. His Instagram is Oakland Hyphae. And, um, and so what they do is they, you know, people grow uh, psilocybin, they bring it to Oakland or send it there. I'm really not sure how it goes, but they, uh, he, he tests them. He's got a lab, you know, and as best as he can, he tests for, you know, like potency and, you know, like the, the different markers that make good, you know, psychedelic mushrooms. And then, you know, they, I guess they award a winner every, every year. <clears throat> there's, there's some guys up there, like Oakland is the spot right now for like that kind of stuff. There's another guy up there, um, Alan Rockefeller, who is uh, like an amateur mycologist. Um, kind of been, you know, traveling, you know, the country and has discovered a lot of new species of, of mushrooms. And um, he too has a lab in in Oakland. Um, and he's banking like, you know, I want to say a couple thousand like um, slants of um, mycelium of various types of mushrooms and all types of psychedelic mushrooms. <laughs> but if you get a chance, you know, you, you know, you get to get on Instagram and, and find those guys. I think, yeah, that'd be awesome. Oh, yeah, I think so too. I think the estimated species of, of mushrooms is in the like eight million something, and we've only identified less than one, I believe. 
Man, what if we found some new strain of mushroom that like not only allowed you to have like these incredible insights and visions, but also allowed you to, you know, it had some other sort of some order of attribute to it where like you could see magnetic waves or something like that. You think that's possible? <laughs> Why not? Well, I, right? Well, I think in the right set and setting, you, you could probably do that with any sort, any old mushroom. You just need the right dose, right? In set and setting. Yeah, it's just finding that magic. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. It so was fun. People out there that are doing different blends of psychedelic mushrooms, mm -hmm. you know, and, and like you know, telling some, you know, pretty fantastic stories about, you know, what the two, you know, these two or three different types of mushrooms that they consumed, um, you know, kind of changed, you know, their experience. Yeah, I, I would imagine. imagine. Yeah. yeah. If you look at like, uh, you know, sativa versus indica. other, yeah, indica, like you have a different kind of high right there. So, you know, why wouldn't different types of mushrooms have a slightly different type of edge to them? It makes sense. Well, you know, so too is like the ability to, you know, take other herbs with them. Like, you know, people are using like spirulina and doing like psilocybin concentrates and then like a spirulina mm. concentrate then you know, that helps like the absorption and and you know um synergistic effects yeah 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 i mean it's just like i mean like we're just like cracking the surface of like you know the possibilities of you know what happens when you blend these medicines with other types of you know like well-researched and you know really common medicines that we've had you know especially in like herbal form you know yeah, in the past and, we're and the channels that, <laughs> yeah that yeah well we're waking up from the shadow of pharmacology right? <laughs> that's so well put we're waking up from the shadow of pharma like pharmacology just put us in this haze it was like a giant tranquilizer that just kind of put everybody out for a little while right and you know now we're coming full circle it seems <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. The talk of the new golden age yeah for sure you know it's like well, i remember like the, our first episode when george was talking about the venomous snake and then a plant that resembled the venomous snake was the antidote to being bit by the venomous snake mm -hmm. in like you know south america somewhere but you know like just in our everyday lives we're surrounded by like medicine you know, the Hawaiians have, um, like in our state constitution, we have this part, it's called Makai, And what it is, is it ensures that all people have access to the ocean for food and people have access to the mountain for, you know, water and medicine. That's awesome. Does that, yes. So there's no ill, like, I wonder how that stacks up with like illegal plants or having, do, does the state law supersede that particular law? Does the state law what prohibition laws supersede right. the Malkitamakai? Well, like yeah. how does how does plants fit in there? Like you can't grow wheat. Like you know, there, there's certain types of plants that are illegal. Like shouldn't that be nixed because of the Malkitamakai? Well, I mean, that's that's the problem. Is is like how many of these plants were introduced that we're talking about growing for medicine, and which ones existed here? You know, pre-discovery. Um, you know, so I think I think it's. I think Malkitamakai is more in the spirit of traditional Hawaiian herbs, you know, native Hawaiian plants. 
vegetation. But, um, you know, I mean, in a state like Hawaii, like, you know, in California, you can't possess like spores or mycelium of, you know, hallucinogenic mushrooms. In Hawaii, you can. Now, the fruiting bodies is another, you know, that's a whole nother story. But, George, I mean, you know, like you, you live in Hawaii, like over yeah, here where can. I live on Maui, they grow everywhere. <laughs> yeah, you they can grow spores. Things. Yeah. Yeah, and we got the right climate for it as well. At least some of them. I mean, you can't have like the some of the stuff that you get in northern United States. Like the weather's too warm over here for them, like the Liberty Caps and that kind of stuff. But there's all kinds of of tropical species that grow here for sure. Yeah, Cubensis, you know, yep. you know, and uh, Copelandia. Um, yep. You know, like the two, like that are you know different varieties of those that are that are growing. You know, at least where I live. You know, I get a, we get 100 inches, 120 inches of rain out here where I live every year. And so, that you know, it's like it's sun, rain, sun, rain, sun, rain, like all the time. And like that's just like perfect weather for like certain species of mushrooms. They just pop up everywhere. Yeah, I had this idea like I wanted to do a, a you know, I think in order to get a new strain, you have to like clone it four different times and then grow it out. But I had this idea in my mind, like I, I think that they're there should be two new strains. Like I tried to work on one, but I, I only got it to clone once or twice, but one, I wanted to do like a Ross Albrook strain. Like, cause that guy just did so much for mushrooms and so much for like, you know, the, the Bitcoin community and just that guy's just an all around awesome guy. I thought it would be amazing. And anybody listening to this? Oh yeah. And anybody listening to this, like we should get on this. Like we should have like a competition maybe between like a, places that have legalized mushrooms where they can grow a strain that's called the Ross Albrook. And every time somebody bought it, like a portion of that would go to like his family or something like that. It could be like an activist hey, type of strain. A real world use for an NFT. Oh yeah, totally. <laughs> totally. Yeah. So Hank Foley, who's an awesome guy, he's been talking about cacti. Uh, Paul, why don't you fill in Hank on what kind of cacti you got going? <clears throat> Oh, what kind of cacti I grow? Yeah. I mean, I grow all kinds. I grow, I mean, yeah, like almost, well, I have several hundred, you know, cactus that I grow here at my house, like of varieties. Um, succulents, whatnot? Yeah, I mean, it's some succulents. Yeah, I, I mean, I grow like potex succulents, like African stuff, you know, um, but um, mostly, mostly cactus. Um, which includes like I grow San Pedro, like different, all different forms. You know, there's like hybridized, you know, there's varieties that grow in certain areas that have gotten, you know, kind of famous names, um, you know, that people have, you know, taken pieces of and then grown those out and given to others. And I have probably have 12 different varieties of Trichoceres Pacanoi, which is the San Pedro. Um, you know, and, you know, I, other, other, other ones as well <laughs> are the cactus do they grow like like if, if you were going to grow just like any other plant they have different strains which have different sort of attributes to them yeah for sure yeah that's why I like i grow uh i grow one that's called mallow four which is a pachinoid i mean it has no scientific name to it but it's from you know a certain region and it was collected long ago um I mean, there's, there's like, you can, you, there's a lot of guys that are out there that are really into like the different types of, of trichoserious pachinoi. Um, 
you know, and then like there, but there were other, I mean, there were other hallucinogenic trichoserious as well, but, you know, Pachinoi seems to be, you know, the, the one that's been most um, cultivated. And, you know, I'm sure I mean, you guys probably have driven by it in your lives oh. many times, you know, like, especially up there in Colorado. I, I think there's, I, you know, I know some of the, some cactus growers up there that are growing, um, that are growing a lot of trichoserious and like greenhouse and hoop house type settings and, and like really cranking them out. Yeah, my, my first experience was down in Ecuador. <clears throat> and I, I had known what they were. I looked for them for in quite a few different countries. But then I was in, uh, uh, they have this, it's called the, the Golden Coast. And they have the, I think it translates to the Sun Road. But it's basically like Highway 1 in California down in Ecuador. Um, and it just runs up the coast. And there's this beautiful town called Montanita, which is like uh, this old hippie town. Uh, it's it, it's wild. Uh the music never stops it just gets to a lower decibel at the in the wee hours of the morning and then as the morning progresses it raises back up and it's just a perpetual party at night you have all these vendors come out and, and street hustlers and magicians and all this uh, it's very bohemian kind of hippie colony that just never it kind of lost to time type idea and as i was walking up in the hills there um all of a sudden I, I turned around the side of the mountain and it was just like on the whole Southern face, it was just nothing but San Pedro. And so here I am a white boy. I run back, go get myself a big old black trash bag and I'm running back up there with machete. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was the first time I ever found it, but yeah, it's, yeah, it, it's prolific when it grows. It, what it, that's, it is a, that, a, a lot of a lot of cactus growers use it for grafting stock because uh, that makes sense. like like things that grow slow guys will like you know scion on top of you know trichoscopus pachinoid grafting stock and you know get those plants to grow faster you know the slower growing stuff for like seed production or to degraft it and put it you know put it back in the ground or in the pot but yeah i mean it's a prolific grower is the active ingredient mescaline in that yeah and what is what is it like? I've never I've never partaken in that. What is what is the what does it feel like if you take that? Um, I mean, to me, you know, it, it's 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 more of a. So I, I've done it three times, and and like each one of my experiences was like like really different from you know the others. Um, the first time I ever did it was just kind of like a more like mellow body experience, you know, um, with not too many like, you know, visual effects happening. It was just more of a like, I don't know, it's kind of like, what's, how's it hard to explain? But like, you know, when you like the onset of like a good like mushroom trip where you kind of feel like the wind's blowing through your body and. You know, you're kind of in tune with just, you know, like, like the nature around you and you can kind of really feel that vibe. That's for me, that was the first time it was kind of mellow like that. And, um, and it, you know, it lasted, you know, a few hours and, um, and I was kind of unimpressed. Um, the second time I did it was kind of wild. Um, <laughs> you know, it was, um, you know, just a lot of like, it was more heady. It was like more in my mind, more more um like experience of just like at least like a mental euphoria 
type experience. Um, and then the third time um, I did it, it was it was actually kind of not even fun, really. It was it was I, I just I just didn't feel like it, it felt like I just was never like in tune with the medicine. I was just kind of stuck in between like, um, you know, in between like different mind states. I don't know. And, and that seemed to go on for quite a while. My experience was <clears throat> uh, like I, I had that whole harvest and this is the only time I really had the experience, uh, but it was all fresh stuff and trying to figure out the content and all of that was a pain in the butt, you know, and eating fresh cactus is actually not good for you. Like, yeah. you know, <laughs> um, so I went, I, I tried a few different things before I finally like boiled down pretty much a giant you know, almost three and a half, four foot cactus, it seemed like probably in total into a big pot. And I just like boiled it down for hours and hours and hours. And that tea got me to that euphoric state. It was kind of like, um, if you ever feel that like really euphoric kind of like after golden glow of LSD, it was kind of like that for about three hours for me. Yeah. When you kind of visuals on there, like like kind of like stuff breathing or it was like i felt like i was attenuated with the nature around mm -hmm. me um it's similar to kind of how you feel on mushrooms you want to, you could talk to the tree and you're pretty sure you can hear the tree but you don't want to tell people you can hear the tree <laughs> yeah you know, uh, kind of like that um but it, it wasn't it, it was only like a two to three hour thing now i'm sure if i you know figured out refined the different parts that I was using and cut out other parts, I would probably get closer to it. But I was just happy I actually found something in the middle of Ecuador. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean the say the dosage is like the size of your forearm. Hmm. Right? You like cut a piece about that big and then boil it down. There's different methods to it. Yeah. You know, and I think I think too like um the three times I did a you know um it was prepared by three different people who had like three different methods hmm. of, of, you know, of preparation. Yeah, I mean, preparation goes a long way into things, you know, just like uh, Amanita muscarias, you know, when you prepare that a certain way, you're, you're eliminating, you know, or you're favoring muscimol over the um, ibutenic acid, right? And so certain heats will break down you know, one of those why I also feed the other. And, you know, just like all chemistry, right? I think there is different preparation message or methods. Yeah, that's why you're probably not going to get the same ayahuasca experience in San, San Diego, California, as you're going to get in the middle of the Amazon in Peru. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What about, have you ever done peyote before? I don't know. No, me neither. Paul? No. no. No, I, I haven't. Yeah. It's, it's always been one of those things where I like, I'd love to come across it. It's just, <laughs> I never come across it. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've come across it. Oh, um, so if I come across something, I'm like, oh, today? Sure. That sounds like <laughs> a good time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's the freedom to, to do what you got to do right there. <laughs> you know, it's going to be hard too. I mean, like in places like California, where they're 
you know, where they're getting ready to try to pass a law that will legalize, you know, hallucinogens. You know, they're basically going to, they want to legalize like everything except for peyote. You know, mm. well, they're, yeah, they're getting pushed back. Like the Native American church is the ones that are like, no, you know, we don't want to see that become like commercialized or. Well, I, I understand. I understand the reasoning behind that. It takes a long ass time to cultivate peyote. Right. What yeah, to, I think it's to cultivate it. Yeah, I, I think yeah, it well, actually it takes like twenty some years to really cultivate the plant, doesn't it? it? It takes a long time unless you graft it on like Pacanoy. Um, oh, okay. But um, um, or Periscopsis, but and then it'll grow really quick, but. You know, this stuff is like highly endangered in its native habitats, you know, and you're talking about like South Texas and the Mexico, right. you know, where it's just, you know, it's just getting bulldozed over and grazed over and freaking, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's increasingly more and more difficult to find, you know, these plants in their native habitats. And, um, you know, I mean, there's people down there like in South Texas. Um, where they're growing Lophophora williamsii, which is like the predominant Lophophora peyote that's growing in that area. And they're like, they're like rescuing thousands of plants, you know, and they don't like when you rip up, when you rip one of these cactus out of the ground, you dig it out with a shovel and you move it. It's like the chances of it surviving are, are low. Uh, um, you know, these things have become highly adapted to their like one specific, Whoa. like 10 square feet of earth on the planet you know <laughs> and so moving them becomes difficult and 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 no one thinks about them because they're you know because we look at them as like this bad stuff you know is what we've been taught you know that that people don't care about them and so you know they're you know they're ready to you know send their cattle over them you know and they're ready to bulldoze them into the ground so they can build homes or expand highways and stuff and it's the same things happening in mexico so it's like for me i'm a proponent of like let's 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 make these plants legalized so that we can grow them we can cultivate them you know and take the pressure off of 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 the stuff in, in you know in habitat yeah i think there's a big push i think that that is is one of the reasons i i saw i read an article that talked about a lot of indigenous americans want to keep the the you know the wild peyote for ceremonial use and there's a lot of backlash from people that are using it for like a westernized ceremony and there's a big pushback between peyote that is grown in a greenhouse versus peyote that's grown you know in a traditional area and stuff like that i think there's a, a lot of pushback there but this brings me to this new i was talking to a lawyer yesterday about the idea of introducing the psychedelic experience into the big three religions. And um, he, he brought up some interesting points. What do you guys think about that? What do you think about the just starting off with like the Christian denomination becoming more of a psychedelic, like the some of the really big churches becoming more psychedelic in nature? I mean, go ahead, Paul. I and I, I I would argue that the inception of the big three religions, you know, was probably due to some sort of psychedelic trip. I would second that argument. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think, you know, there is a lot of foundations 
for what Christianity is based on in the psychedelic experience. And I think we can see the congruities through all ancient aspects of what we call our ancient theologies, um, you know, everywhere from the Sumerians onward. Uh, So introducing it today, however, is a very different question than where it originated from. I think you would have a lot of people who would say, hey, you know what? I've understand what I've heard and I've read for the past 40 years of my life at a whole different level than I could have ever understood it if I listened for another 40 in the way that I was before. I also think you're going to end up with a good chunk of people who are say, what the heck's going on? I've been lied to my entire life, Um, you know, and you're going to see the plethora of scandals that the church really encompasses uh, just blown out into the wild. So I I don't think because of the reasons of the scandals and and the fallout of everything, I don't think you would actually see it kind of take hold. You might get like a grassroots movement type thing. And I think there already are people trying to do that, right? Uh, They're using uh, Native American heritage to kind of justify their rituals, uh, which on one hand, I'm kind of, you know, I'd like it. On the other hand, as somebody who's practiced it for a long time and understands the pitfalls aren't just small pitfalls, Uh, They can potentially be grand canyons of pitfalls, uh, especially when, and we have examples of this, right? We have the tech bundies. We have, you know, we we have the things that people use psychoactive substances in order to manipulate others into putting them into, you know, very questionable environments and then ultimately very bad environments. And I think if you were to give all of these evangelical uh, TV preachers this sort of power, I think you see a lot of that, unfortunately. Yeah, it makes me wonder. I, you know, I've I have I've listened to some podcasts and I have talked to some people who have begun starting like, um, you know, like Christian retreats where they'll take a psychedelic and begin integrating that which happens to them, sort of like the Good Friday experiment, but like in different areas. And on some levels, like I, I agree with what you said. I think it's really powerful in a lot of ways like i think that you can under the right circumstances maybe get closer to your idea of god by experiencing like a prophetic state you know there's and 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 for someone who has really read up on the different prophets and understands biblical scripture you know that could be a way you interpret what happens to you and it could be a way to strengthen your faith however i i I would say that the 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 property of boundary dissolution can become a problem because it seems to me that a lot of the church's function is to create boundaries for people, whether they're rails to stay on or guidelines to stay on. And I think if our, uh, if our other friend was here, um, that I think he would, he would end up saying a little bit more about that. But yeah, I, I do think there's, there's room for it. And I think in some ways it, it would loosen the boundaries of the church, which could which could be good for people. It could be good to break down some of these intense boundaries between certain types of religions. What do you think, Paul? You know, I think it, I think it would lead to people leaving the Christian church. You know, is, is what I think if they were to start trying to integrate, you know, 
these things and in, into like church practices i think you know i think i mean for me i'm just speaking out of personal experience like i i don't i've never been like a religious person like we didn't go to church growing up or any of that kind of stuff but you know after my first few you know psychedelic experiences like i that's when i really started questioning like this whole idea of god and 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 you know a lot of like you know the the pillars of religion um you know i just seem to kind of get further away nothing brought me closer to to any of the the three you know major religions i think i think people would bail do you think they would bail or rebel? I think they would just. I think they would bail. I just think they would. You know, I think the the more people who do psychedelics, I think those people are less likely to be, you know, religious. I would tend to agree. I think religion is a confines more so than it is a <clears throat> an expansion of one's mind and perception of things. You know. Uh, unfortunately so. I think it, it wasn't, you know, necessarily the intention, but the intention magnified over generations and generations, you know, turned into a control mechanism. Mm. And in that control mechanism, I think it's in my study of anthropology and some of the older stuff on the planet, uh, all, most of our older texts don't speak of any sort of evil deities, right? There's nothing that's necessarily evil. There's no, there's no such thing as good and bad. There's essentially nuance, uh, except when you start to get to the points in human history where the greatest threat to humanity was other humans. And then all of a sudden you see the advent of things like hells and all of these landscapes of, of damnation, of purgatory, of all of these different aspects of ex existential, um, you know, eternal damnation. Uh, things that you don't have control of on this planet to try to corral that, you know, the, the human element of wherever these religions popped up. Now, they borrowed on the previous iterations of all of this, all of this information. And, you know, I think we're much more today than, than before. We're putting together this puzzle piece of how all of these were related, where they came from, you know, what sort of, you know, you have... You know, in Enoch, you have a Thoth, you have a Hermes, you have, uh, you know, uh, Melchizedek. You, in all of these characters, are actually iteration of a similar character. Uh, you have flood stories, you have the Noah story, you have the Gilgamesh story, you have uh, other ancient flood myths that all of them seem to have these tenuous little uh, interconnections of things. Uh, and so I think once we get to that, you know, once we start to put these pictures together, you will, you know, people go all of a sudden, well, you guys were selling me this whole different story about eternal damnation and all this other stuff that's really bad. But yet what I see, what I feel, especially under these influences and these substances is this vast interconnectedness of everything. Yeah, you know, the ability for you and I to communicate at a different level, for me to tell you the one thing that I needed to tell you, but can never find the words. And, you know, and all of a sudden it removes the appeal to authority. And I think that's fundamentally what a lot of religion has this, these days, is that appeal to authority. And I think that's what a lot of dictatorial systems, authoritative systems have these days too, right? 
and you don't solve your own problems. You go on and tell you know whoever's in charge about your problems and let them solve it. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's not a bug. That's a feature, I think, or it has become a feature, right? It depends on your perspective. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, just to expand on what you just said, Ben, you know, is that you know religions are, you know, they're based in faith. And to me, like, you know, hallucinogens provide, at least for me, truth. And, um, and therefore, you know, like this idea of believing in, you know, something that to me, you know, isn't really rooted in logic and reason, you know, just became so, even, like more harder to accept. I agree with you. Um, my, I, I, I have a little bit of defi different definition of terms. I, I think belief is kind of our suspension of reason, right? And I think belief, you know, people say belief is synonymous with faith, but I, I really don't agree with that statement at all. Otherwise, why, why do you need two terms that are really completely different uh, linguistically? You know, I can understand if it was two terms that kind of developed in sequence, but faith and belief are two very different terms. And I think belief is that suspension of reason. Uh, but I think, I think faith actually has a component of reason in it. And so I, I like the term reason faith is an interesting yeah, well, I mean, that it, I like to explore. Yeah, I mean, it has to have that component inside of it, you know, within it. Let me ask this part to you guys. Do you think that when I was talking to this gentleman, he was, he was talking about how a lot of people today they go to South America, not like Ben to go and live there or to, to reside there or learn there or to, to be there, but they go there specifically to have like a psych, uh, psychedelic journey, be it ayahuasca or some sort of ceremony like that. And this guy's point was, you know, that's cool. You can go there and you can, you can have the experience and you can integrate it, but can you really? Like you're having a psychedelic experience, an environment and in a culture that's not even yours. So while you can't have great benefits from it, wouldn't it be better to have a psychedelic experience in a framework that you're familiar with? And for him, he was saying that is one of the reasons why he would like to see people in Christianity who are turning to psychedelics have a framework for it. The same way people would go to, you know, you get some white guy that goes down to the middle of South America to be in this ceremony. A lot of times it's like on a beach in a private resort, you know, and it's not really... It's more of a, a commercial it's a venue. Attraction. It's a tourist attraction, right? And he's saying, like, wouldn't it be better if you had your own framework in a church here in a group of people that you could that you could, you know, really bond with? And it, it just brought about the cultural aspect of it. Like, yeah, why, that that seems like if you were wanting to have the experience, you know, why would you want to have it? in an area that is not an area you're familiar with, you know, or, or how would it change? I think it would change. I think it, I think it's an interesting point we're talking about. Wouldn't it, it seems like, especially for someone who's maybe deep in the faith, if they want to try this, it would be better for them to try it in a peer group than in some foreign country. Right. That's why. So they can reinforce each other's dogma. <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't, I, I think I don't it would know. break them out of it. Like, I mean, I don't, I, I think that, I've had a multiple experiences where I'm coming, kind of coming, coming down into the psychological state of it with my friends. And I, I don't, I, I don't remember any time I'm reinforcing dogma as I am asking questions. It seems more philosophical at that point. I think it would be 
not only therapeutic, but like you said in an earlier part of the conversation, more questioning. Do you think that people would get together like they'd have an well, aisle? Or a, give the answers, though. Right. Yeah. It, I would agree with that. It's going to be highly dependent on, on the person who's set and set it. You know, like, like, like the church doesn't need another, you know, tool to help control people's minds here, George. <laughs> well, I, I guess I should have defined it like so, maybe the setting, maybe, maybe I, I mean, obviously I mean, you could have Jonestown again without a doubt, but you could also have a retreat where people go and, you know, they, they don't necessarily have someone preaching to them. They could just kind of be by themselves or with a small group of people or, or something like that. But I think it would depend on setting. So I think this is an important distinction because I think the psychedelic journey is, a, in, especially in the beginning, uh, but perhaps in totality, the journey of self. Mm. And to try to throw it under the, the cloud of a dogma or, you know, I, in, this is kind of one of the reasons I disagree with the whole South American ayahuasca trips and all of these other things is, you know, you're, you're, you're putting yourself into this kind of woo-woo experience. And, you know, because of that, you're, you're, you're creating the placebo effect for one. So you're moving yourself from the experience because your expectations are now entwined with your whatever your intent might be in this experience. But because you're not mindful of all this, because you are going for a two week experience, you're you're all wound up. All of your emotions are all entwined in this. You're not at peace. You know, this is exciting. This is something that's going to change my life. This is all of these things. Right. So you've removed your your ability to actually do the work to have that reflection in the black mirror to, to traverse the abyss. And by doing that, I think you do a disservice to yourself. That's not to say you can't come away with something that's beneficial to you, but I think that you actually don't get the work done. Yeah. It sounds like a real hoop, you know, like I'm going to go and, you know, I'm going to do like, you know, seven grams of, you know, of mushrooms. Like come join us for seven grams of mushroom tea with father Joseph. You know, as, <laughs> you know, as he, as he, you know, as he guides us through the spiritual process, his father, Joseph, is sitting there saying, you know, now, son, reach down into your heart and let God, you know, fulfill yeah. you. You know what I mean? Like that. Yeah, that's that'd be great. Like talk about people on meds being fucked up from religion to begin with. That's all we need to do is to add a little bit of this to religion and see how fucked up people get. Hey, hey, amen to that. <laughs> okay, let me let me try to push back on that a little bit. Like, I don't think, like, I think it's important to think about how beneficial religion has actually been for the world we live in. Like, if you look at the way we've come together, and I'm not saying that all religion, I'm not saying there hasn't been violence, but to say that religion hasn't <laughs> been all the violence. <laughs> Oh, that's so funny, George. Okay, listen. <laughs> oh, that was good. Yeah, keep going. <laughs> okay. So Cheers. In, in in times let's let's think about the word faith. Like, have you ever gotten through a difficult time without having faith? Like, how do you get through difficult times? Do you believe in yourself? It depends on how you decide to interpret God. Maybe God resides within you. And if you believe that, then religion is a good thing. 
Religion can mean a lot of things. I probably should have defined my terms before I started. But the idea of religion, your idea of God may be different than my idea of God. So if God resides in me and I have faith in myself, you could say that I'm religious. And if we take that bent, yeah, a ceremony where you go to pray to God, where you go to see Brother George or Brother Someone, a group of like-minded people where there's not a hierarchy, where there's a group of philosophical people that have the same belief in faith, and you go to say you go to the top of Mauna Kea and you sit there with like a tribe of people. Like, I think that that kind of religious experiment is worthwhile. So yeah, why not? Well, I would agree with that, but you know, you're also, it's the context, you know, the context right. that you're placing that in is set in setting. And to place that in the context of thousands of years of recorded war and strife and struggle, means that you are placing that context into your set and setting now that's not to say that it can't be overcome with the intent of the the group and, and whatnot but still i think when you when you start to play with these these symbols these mm -hmm. the ideologies um you know it becomes a a much heavier burden than the individual is usually willing to be you know subjected to in in a in a, in a trip like that um, and I think it brings up a lot of existential questions, too, in that, you know, why would I be a part of something that has explored this type of path in the world? Was it, ne was it necessary? Do I even have the knowledge to be able to ask these questions? You know, it, it kicks off these a series of, of events that are, you know, massive and could go in a variety of directions. And <clears throat> so I think, it, you know, I, I think a one-on-one -on -one individual, you know, with somebody who is aware of what the medicine does and how to guide someone's path through the medicine and who is aware of the individual's journey and what they're trying to accomplish, their intent, I think that's the proper path. I think when you start to get into group settings, um, it's one thing if you've got a whole bunch of people who've been doing this for 20 years right. and have all communicated and are all on similar pages, that's a different story. That's a different experiment. If you start taking Mary Joe Sue and Bobby and Bobby Joe out of the congregation and feeding them stuff, I, you're going to end up in with some problems. <laughs> Without a doubt, I, I I would I would like to introduce this idea that you know we always talk about you, history doesn't repeat but it rhymes, and looking forward, which is is tough to do. If we can see, like, I don't think we ever live in a world without religion. And so to say that we can shed its skin, I think is naive at best. However, it doesn't mean we can't change the shape of it. It doesn't mean that we can't harness some of its beauty to help mankind move forward. Well, I think there's a, yeah, absolutely. Right. What do you mean? How, how, how do you think we're I mean, doing actively, that? I mean, actively as, as a global society, right. us on a small level, you know, we are doing this. These are the conversations that make that possible. Right. Without without us having these little roundtables, nobody speaks these words. They aren't heard. They aren't they aren't thought about. They aren't reflected upon. Um, but, you know, just like all it takes is that one person to smile at you when you have the shittiest day and yeah. it turns everything around and you don't even know them. It can be one of those sentences that 
seems innocuous, but then all of a sudden triggers the right idea in the right person's mind. And all of a sudden you get a, a, a dissemination of, of, you know, whole changing of generations of, of humanity, you know, moving on to a golden age. Uh, I, so I think we are invested in it right now. We're seeing it. And I think because of our experiences, that's why we're here. We're talking about it because we've all seen something. We've all caught the glimmer. And we understand what that glimmer is at kind of a visceral level. Our ability to articulate it is, eh, fuck that. It's not going to happen. But we, we give it a shout every Sunday. So tune in, folks. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so... Are you convinced, Paul, that religion can be a good thing? Um, I mean, I mean, it can be. I mean, yeah. religion has always, you know, served its purpose. And, you know, maybe, you know, 200 years ago, 300 years ago, 1,000 years ago, was, you know, was more important to people. But I think, you know, as we, you know, you know, move into the future, I think, it, you know, like Ben was saying, like, it's going to change not that it hasn't already been doing that like drastically over the last thousand years because it has but um but you know it's going to find itself i mean who knows where religion finds itself you know even a hundred years from now isn't but, religion a collective reflection of our societal exploration it should be <laughs> I think it is. That sounded right to me. I, you know. Say it again. That was. It was actually. I. I really like it. I want to hear it again. I want to think about it. Oh, I just made this up. So hold okay, on. Okay, it's beautiful. Let's it, go with it. Is it religion a reflection of our collective societal exploration into the unknown? How about that? I don't know. Like I don't know if it's collective because I think there's a small group of people. That, that force the view. You know what I mean? Like it's it's well, kind of top down. But it well, kind of sure. starts off as the collective, though, right? It should, yeah. But, it's you know, still it's, the I collective. Mean, help it that some people want to be in charge. Well, and then eventually, you know, things do or don't come out into the greater zeitgeist of things, and that it does have a, a you know changes the direction, right? But that's still the collective of our society. You know, it just the small group of people who think they're pulling all the strings, well, that's all fine and dandy, but everybody else is still going their own directions. So, I, you know, I think the collective in that term of the sense of humanity. Would you differ, like, th that definition seems it could be interchanged with culture. Would you, is that, could that be also? I don't know. I think culture, I think culture is defined much more locally. I think culture culture might be in a similar vein mm. and it might be defined upon similar terms but it's defined in a much more local environment i think when we're talking about religion we're talking about this massive existential inability to understand what we observe around us and it's been that perpetual movement to understand that that infinite all out there that is the foundational movement of religions, but it's also the it's also the reflection of kind of what is motive foundational uh, foundationally motivating as a human being. I mean, there's places where religion defines culture. You know, these things are so tightly intertwined that you can't get you can't you can't, you can't break them apart from the other. Yeah. 
what if like let's just do the a thought experiment like if you were just to put on your your wizard hat or your your look into the future hat how could you see religion evolving in the next hundred years I don't know if evolving is the word. I mean, it's devolving is more the word that I would use. Okay. What? Tell me what you think it would look like in a hundred years. In a hundred years, man, I don't know. It depends on what part of the earth we're, we're talking about. Let's say in America, in America, you know, seems to be, you know, a couple warring factions right now, you know, um, in America, and some are trying to drag us, you know, back a hundred years, two hundred years, and using religion as a tool to do that. And then there are groups that are trying to, you know, propel us forward, and and they're also using religion to do that as well. And so, like, you know, I think it's it's pretty obvious in in just like the state of America, you know, um, there's there's a real battle going on here and so i think ultimately within the next you know 15 to 20 years we'll you know we'll start to see you know with that battle but if you ask me right now i i think the 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 religious groups that are trying to drag us back into the you know 15th and 16th century i think they're winning hmm. so you see sort of a revival to uh uh a a renaissance of the well, then 1500s yeah. or something. Well, I mean, I mean, what, so like what we're seeing right now is, you know, religion and a culture, you know, that are closely intertwined, you know, and even four or five years ago, you know, their methodology and their language describing, you know, what they were doing religiously and culturally was not so overt. Today, it's, you know, it's, it's completely over. And, you know, there's a clear, um, you know, definition with some of the, with some of the, of, of our society here in America, you know, about their intent to intertwine, you know, that, that this intertwined culture um, and religion are, is what to, you know, is, is going to move us forward in America. You know, I mean, right now, if I can say, clean this up a little bit, but right now it seems like there's a Euro, certain European culture that is closely intertwined with religion. And they're trying to, you know, maintain status quo and keep America, you know, um, more closely related to, you know, more closely tied to this culture and religion than, um, you know, than having any other multiple cultures or religions, you know, exist or, you know, begin to change what America looks like. You know, as you were talking about that, and this just popped in my head, so <clears throat> just off the top of my head, uh, perhaps a different perspective. Um, I think maybe people watched what's happened over the past few years and have realized finally, you know, not just a small group of people who were like, you guys don't see this is all broken and going to shit, right? But now the larger group of people looked around and realized that, hey, the wheels are falling off this wagon. And I think 
one of the most natural instincts in that case is to revert to what you thought you previously knew worked. Mm -hmm. And I think in, in most, in, in a lot of those people's minds, what previously worked in this country was the, the merger of those two things was when it was, you know, God, country, family. Yeah, I it, it that seems a strategy people use for any time of crisis. Whenever, especially societal or any kind of breakdown, you go back to the last time things were working because that seems to be where you went astray. And not saying that that was the ideal time or we have or safe that. points in all of our games, right? Right, <laughs> right. That's a great way to look at it. You know, but I don't know if, like in America, if like you're talking about well. A lot of the people that are actually, you know, uh, making the most noise about, um, you know, I guess what I'm specifically talking to is Christian nationalism that is, you know, seems to be more, pre you know, uh, prevalent in our society today than it was, you know, 10 years ago. At least there are more people, you know, willing to express, you know, so, that they are Christian nationalists now than maybe they were 10 years ago. But, um, um, you know, it seems to me like like it's not like it's not a defensive thing that, you know, like they're afraid of something. Well, these people are definitely afraid. No, it's, it's defensive like, from the bottom up. It's defensive from the local populace. It's not defensive from the people who are actually spouting this stuff. The people who are right. spouting this stuff are just charlatans like they've always been. You know, the, the, the Latin language defined politics as many blood sucking critters. They knew it a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, right. So these are just these are just char charlatans peddling whatever is going to get them, you know, the most hip hip hurrah. Uh, and because the people are afraid, they are reverting to what they they know or what they think they know is the next best solution or the last working solution, the safe state, which is, hey, there was a merger of this once upon a time, and we were the best in the world because. You know, one that was the propaganda they were fed, but two, it was true in in a few set in a few instances, right? Especially for their ability to actually succeed in life and grow in life and have opportunities and all of this stuff. So you know that default mode that that save state. You know, I I think I think it's a strong psychological factor in this whole equation. Yeah, I think it plays on everybody wants things to be better and when you think of better you think of wholesome you know you think of like less crime you think of less corruption and not not that those two things are 100 percent congruent with with returning to the church or whatever well, they're not right they're not at all you know for from any student of these systems right they're not at all but <laughs> but the perception is there because right. the narrative was had the ability to be controlled yeah, I, I often think, like, taking it back to psychedelics in the church, like, you know, with, with my limited understanding of previous ideas about religion, it seems to me that Christianity, Christianity on some level was a sect, you know, and there's plenty of evidence to support that Jesus thought that God resided within you and you shouldn't have to go to a house of worship, that you shouldn't have to go and be in front of everyone and you should be able to celebrate and pray right inside your own heart, inside your own house. And so my idea of the psychedelic tradition returning to Christianity would be that idea that God resides within you. 
and we get back to the found the bottom up like right now it's this authoritarian idea all, all of our societies seem to be based on authoritarianism where it comes from the top down there is this level but in reality if we flip the pyramid over it should be those on you know the most up here should make the rules and then it should flow down and so if the people on the bottom began having psychedelic experiences i think it would shatter some of the walls of the hardcore christianity or the hardcore muslims or the any hardcore type of religion that is so constricted i think it blows apart those walls and when people begin to start asking the questions like paul said earlier when people begin to have sessions with like-minded people and they go wow you know what i'm a little bit more accepting of things or hey this guy up top here kind of running his mouth a little crazy you know what i mean like I, I, I think that there's a real chance for Christianity and other religions to turn to their roots. And if we look at you know some of the greatest thinkers of all times who said that religion was more of a finger pointing to the moon, it doesn't matter if that's a Muslim finger or a Christian finger, it's pointing to the moon and we should be pointing towards the ideals. And that, that was my aspect of, of why what would happen if we reintroduced the psychedelic experience what if everybody could could see the burning bush what if everyone could see the chariot might they then have a return to the kingdom is all around us i mean <clears throat> i i think it's an excellent hypothesis i really do uh i i, I think when we really put a magnifying glass on it i think we have to ask a couple questions one, you know, you referenced, you know, Christianity and, and Islam, and then, but you also have Judaism in that, Judaism, which are right. the, the Abrahamic religions, right? Right. Those are those seem to be fairly well derived from Zoroastrianism, um, which was kind of an extension of, uh, you know, a whole bunch of the most, most ancient stuff from Samaria, cool. Egypt, Babylon, Assyria all of those stuff was kind of compiled into those types of things. And then monotheism was introduced at the Zoroastrianism level. I think I was listening to something today, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, they recovered one text that isn't in any of the official um, um, uh, uh, Torahs. Hebrew. Torah. Yeah, the Hebrew Torahs. And that in that section of text basically indicated that you know, uh, it was a part of Deuteronomy, and it, it basically indicated where uh, God was disseminating uh, land to the lesser gods or other gods, mm. one of them called Yahweh, and he got the land of Jacob, i.e. Israel. <clears throat> um, and that was actually something that was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, you know, so I think we, we, we're starting to piece more and more pieces of this puzzle as we go back that there is a confluence of many different religions and ancient, you know, uh, symbology and rituals and ceremonies that went into all of this. Uh, and then to fast forward that all into now and to give somebody a whole heap of mushrooms and say, welcome to the reality of the world. I think, I think you're going to end up with, <laughs> in a dangerous situation for a lot of people. Um, don't get me wrong. I appreciate the sentiment. I like it. I, I've had plenty of, I've, I've had fantasies in my younger days. About, you know, what would happen if I went to that big old youth night, right? And just spiked the punch. You know, just, just LSD and the punch. What would that do to people? And I've had that thought experiment to myself, which is a horrible thought experiment. Yeah. <laughs> 
but at the same time, it's it's an interesting one, uh, you know. And it, and then you know, usually I concluded that, yeah, probably a lot of people would go insane. And then upon doing some research in history, we kind of have some evidence to suggest what would happen, right? Back in the medieval days when they were using rye bread and they were keeping it in those monasteries, they would get ergot poisoning, which is basically just a precursor to LSD, but has a lot more toxicity effects and makes you think like you're dying. And so it puts you into a pretty bad trip and people start to see the devil and witches and all sorts of things and they start murdering each other. <laughs> so, you know, we do have a little bit of evidence to suggest this might not be the best idea, but, you know, George... In the Church of George, you do you, brother. <laughs> you know, I'm, com I'm coming from like a good place. Idea. I don't like the idea of like of creating like, disciples. I mean, you know, now with um, you know, with like people are getting into experimenting with, with all different types of hallucinogenic medicines, and you know, and people are like, oh, well, you know, I'll be your shaman. You know, I'll mm. be your coach. I'll be yeah. your guide. You know, and to me, I, I just, I've never really thought about it, but it just never really sat too well with me. You know, I was, I kind of think that it's, it's a personal journey. And, and when you begin, you know, you know, these, ex, you know, experimenting with this stuff that I, I, I feel like you'd be doing yourself a disservice if you had somebody there, like, you know, telling you like, this is what you should be feeling or what you're feeling is okay. Or what you're feeling is not normal or any of these different things, you know, I, so like when you talk about like this, you know, like, you know, freaking mushroom night with father Joseph, you know, I just kind of <laughs> go like, this isn't, this, this doesn't sound right. You know, I mean, in any type yeah. of, of, you know, religion, whether it's Christianity or Judaism or Islam or Buddhism or whatever, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's, I think it's something that everybody has to go through on their own, you know, the good and the bad, and you work it out and you figure it out for yourself. And it, and it doesn't happen in, 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 you know, one night, two nights, three nights, it's, it, it takes time. And I think that outside interference um, only inhibits, you know, your internal growth when, when using these medicines. I would typically agree with you. I, I think uh, in all ages, there are people who are called uh, to actually facilitate the people who do have a need um, to have a mentor, to have a shaman, to have a guide. Uh, at the same time, the second you start putting price tags on any of this mm. stuff uh, is a pretty damn fine sign that that's the path that you do not want to go down. Uh, if you start monetizing medicine, especially this type of medicine, uh, you're going to lead people down a, the wrong path eventually. And it's not like, yeah, there's some side effects from pharmacology and stuff like that. But this is this is like side effects that happen to not just them, but the family and all sorts. You know, it could be pretty detrimental, uh, which is, you know, George has asked the question before is, you know, do you have somebody who's like in a clinical setting with this? administering this and saying hey this is going to be your experience you should feel right. this and if you feel this you should you know think about this breathe this way or do you have somebody who is familiar intimately with those experiences and knows the person 
well, I mean, you know, it, it's a pretty simple answer. If you're thinking about it logically, you want somebody who's intimate with the experience as much as the information as possible to try to make a successful outcome to a problem or a potential problem. Uh, but I think we are, you know, now we're going to see that. And, you know, we might see the blowback that George talks about because of that. You know, all it takes is a couple highly publicized bad trials and it all goes to pot pretty quick. You know, I think it's important to note, too, like, at least in North America, like, we, we're, we're a lot of drug addicts, you know, whether it's Adderall and Modafinil or SSRIs. <laughs> yeah, okay. And so now I was talking to a person just a couple of days ago that was, had done a lot of Adderall. And they're getting ready to go and have a psychedelic experience. And I, on one level, I'm excited for them because I think it'll help them get over the Adderall because that's that while, while Adderall can be extremely effective for people with certain conditions, it's also really hard on your body. It's, it's basically like meth, right? I think it's actually made from like the same. It's an amphetamine. It's an, it's a, exactly. And so, you know, when you move, if you're already on like a pretty hardcore amphetamine, and then you're moving, all of a sudden you're going to have this psychedelic therapy. Like that person who's, who's on a lot of Adderall, who's on a lot of drugs or on a heavy drug like that, that person already has some mental issues that they're on that drug for. You know what I mean? And so when you have like – here comes the question like, okay, if a person that has some disorders is seeking to get rid of this, those disorders through psychedelics – at what level do they need a therapist? Because they probably needed a therapist to get prescribed that drug. And do you does the person okay. they go to a new therapist who's going to program them through their psychedelic experience, which is, you know, it's almost like a hypnotism in a way. Then we're back to the placebo, like that you talked about. Well, and this is the problem of when medicine beats society and and it's monetized. Because well now, because now instead of us actually trying to determine the best path, the best path, path, the best course for this person, it becomes a question of, uh, you know, accreditations, certificates, yeah. uh, you know, uh, published articles, published scientific papers, all these this litany of other things that don't actually, at the end of the day, matter. Yes, they might influence the ability of that person to be able to come to a proper solution, but. The proper solution is the proper solution, regardless of the credentials and accreditations. And our society is not built in a way that will allow mm. um, that sort of influence. That's why people have to go to Peru. That's why people are down in Mexico. That's why people are going to Costa Rica, uh, is because there is so much liability in this litigious society that even if you do decide to test the waters, you could end up shit creek without a paddle for the rest of your life and you know that gamble you know in the factor of the entire equation really makes it kind of an untenable situation so i you know there's a lot of hurdles to overcome when we're talking about all this stuff that are much more you know probably the largest hurdles are those that are driven via the established system that we have in place today yeah it makes sense man it I is. Agree. It's a great point. I never, I mean, sometimes the legalization of the system brings with the, the, well, the legalization brings commercialization, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And regulation. 
and then certification. And then corruption. <laughs> and then corruption. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just like the natural progress of just trying to get ahead of the next guy, right? Yeah. You know, it's like, it's like, you know, you want to, you want to get, you want to get rich. You know, you got to do one of two things: define an industry or get in the middle of something that's already working. Right, and you know, the the race to the bottom. When, mm. because that's all it is is when you get in the middle of those industries all it is is a race to the bottom oh we can provide this better service because we're not going to actually pay people to do the job we have an ai system that can do the job right these things become a race to the bottom eventually the next guy's going to have the ai system too eventually all these things become super super cheap so we need to figure out how to charge for something else uh and but in that race to the bottom the quality falls through the floor uh, you know, the ability to actually service what was initially started falls through the floor. However, the shareholders in that course of time profit tremendously. Yeah. And that is ultimately one of the foundational problems facing our society at scale today. Okay, this brings up an idea in that vein do you see the freedom like do you think that the freedom we have is just an interlude that is felt from passing from one way of living to another like we have had this idea of a republic and we had this idea that we were free for a while and now it seems we're charging full steam into a technocratic takeover and it seems like maybe this idea of freedom we either the idea of freedom is changing or the idea of freedom is vanishing do you guys see it that way? Um, go ahead, Paul. If you got some. <laughs> no, I was just you know trying to digest George's question right there, and I know you posted that onto our chat. You know, um, I I don't know, George. You know, um, you know, if we went back a hundred years and we were talking to Americans about freedom and you know what it them and how they would define it, if if we would actually have the same definitions, you know, or, or have the same understanding of what freedom is. You know, I think the more constraints that are put on people, you know, um, the more freedom matters. But I think they also, you know, seek freedom in all the wrong places. Um, meaning, you know, those the small choices that people are, you know, able to make, you know, Coke or Pepsi, you know, these, these little tiny things that right. people that, you know, is actually, you know, like I live in a country of choice. I live in a place where there's freedom and, 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 you know, and then you see like, there's this always, to me, there's always been this idea of like, you know, keeping things that are extreme as, as freedoms, you know, and people view them as, as extremes, you know, whether, whether that may be like gun pornography, um, you know, and, and some of the more extreme aspects of our society while they erode our everyday freedoms away from us, you know, but we still view ourselves as being like, Hey, I live in this country where, where, you know, where we can have guns and we can, you know, we can watch pornography on any street corner, you know? So I live in the freest place in the world. And, and, and so I think too, that there's just a lot of like, at least here in America that, you know, if you ask Americans like what freedom is, I don't, I don't even know if they could, you know, like define what freedom is. So I don't, I, you know, like, I don't know if that, I don't think that answers your question, George, but, you know, I think it's, 
no, well, um, I think it I think it paints the foundation for an answer. Um, and you know, you touched on it. It's freedom by itself is there's no such thing as freedom. If there was true unadulterated freedom, you know, particles could go in any which shape, direction, and form, and nothing around us would exist. Um, it, would it would be it would be utter chaos. So there's order amongst that chaos and so there's a natural necessity to the limitations of freedom and then when you kind of extrapolate that down to the person you touched on it too you said freedom of choice and we have the freedom of choice um and you know our freedom of choice is going to be limited and expanded uh in any given moment by the previous moments and the choices of others uh and you know some of those choices we have no ability to influence uh other uh, other choices like if we're going to eat chicken or a hamburger tonight we have a lot of ability to influence potentially uh but so there's a there there has to be a definition of terms and i think when you know a lot of these conversations come up about liberty and freedom and all of these stuff you know freedom is one thing but if if we're just taking freedom at it at the name of the or at the definition of the word can i come steal your chicken well i don't appreciate you stealing my chicken i don't think that that's a good idea yeah i guess you're free to do it uh you're free to make that choice but you're not free from the consequences and so there has to be more definitions to this this conversation you can't just stop it hey hurrah freedom you know there's freedom of choice and then there's the responsibility of consequence uh and the responsibility of consequence is the you know the reflection of our choices into the world and, and i think that's you know very important conversation that's just not had at all these days um you know personal responsibility is something that we do not exonerate in our on this in this western society uh, you know, if you get in trouble as a kid, it's an appeal to authority. It's go talk to the principal. If you have a problem on the street, it's call the police. If you, you know, if you can't deal with something, you call somebody. You know, we don't have a, 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 this overbearing sense of personal responsibility that, you know, somebody who was pioneering the West would have had. Now, there's something to be said about not having that burden. But there's also something to be said about being aware and acknowledgement of how we should be living in 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 context of the world, and I think that's an important conversation that we just don't have a lot of today. Yeah, it's almost completely gone from the lexicon, you know. And it it's I really think that every conversation should start by defining your terms, you know. And it's it's too bad that that doesn't happen. And even like, I, I'm, I'm guilty of it as well. And I oh, think that that's, guilty of it. yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, it seems to me that, and maybe it's always been this way. Maybe it's just a, a limitation of my experience, but it seems that there's less in like, the freedom of can is what I had written down. Like, and it gets back to, yes, you can go steal my chicken. Especially if you have, the, if you're the guy with the guns, then you can do it. And the, the, the people at the top are using the word freedom to tell the people on the bottom, like, look, you're free. You could do whatever you want. 
But by doing that, they are shifting the responsibility of their actions onto the lower class. Look, we're all free people. You know what? You're free to leave this job. You're making thirty bucks. You can you can leave if you want to. But right. what you know? But what about your family? What about your kids? What about your food? What about interest rates? Oh well, you're free to do it. What you don't? Are you afraid? You're a big chicken. You know what I mean? You're scared to do it. You have the same freedom I have. I just happen to have guns and millions of dollars. We're, we're essentially equal. You know, and like this. <laughs> You know that was good. I like that. That was that was a nice icing on the cake right there. Yeah, we're essentially equal, right? You know? So it's paper. It's, that's all that separates us, okay? But like you, this idea of freedom has that. That's what I mean. Like it's it's being used against the very people that claim they love it, and that's what bothers oh, me. Oh, hundred percent it is uh, because you have to, you know, along with the bread and circus, you have to provide hope. Mm. Right. And hope is that we're better than everybody else for one. Right. You have to be able to sell that message. But the hope is that the hope for our or the future generations, they're going to be prosperous beyond our wildest imaginations. And so it becomes this impetus to kind of sell this, you know, this, this false reality. And that's where you get a lot of you know, the propagandas, the narratives, you get the state usurping industry, you get a lot of these things, because in order to provide that future that they proclaim, which, you know, is pretty unreasonable, usually, if you look at a lot of the proclamations of the state, uh, they have to, you know, try to try to take all of these resources in order to make this a reality. And usually what ends up happening is you get a few really shitty monuments and the eradication of a nation. <laughs> well put. <laughs> A few shitty monuments. <laughs> oh, some of them might. Some people might talk about it in a few thousand years, but you know. Yeah, right. Another point that this guy. This, I'm gonna show you the book. I don't. Have, oh, this book I was reading right here. It's um, Young Chul Han. If anybody can see this, it's really it's really interesting, and uh. He goes on to talk about like in the same transformation, the way we're talking about freedom and some of these things happening in our communities. He talks about how a lot of the world today under the authoritarian rule or under most governments has gone from the idea of like subjugation as as rulers and subjects, the people being subjects to transforming the individual into their own project. So if you think of how a king may look at his subjects, the king at some point could be in trouble because his subjects could rebel against him. And the governments, the subjects could, excuse me, could rebel if times are tough. And they are they subjected to all kinds of things. However, if you begin to transform the subjects into their own projects, then they, then they lose have their own problems. They, right. They're no longer have someone to rebel against because it's their fault. And if you look at, and so, so this is where it kind of been like, this is where I, I fall into a question because when we talk about people not taking responsibility for their lives, if we become our own project, you know, people stop blaming for, it seems it's possible that people could stop blaming the system or society for their problems, which might be good in some ways. But like you said, what percentage of people really pull themselves up and become millionaires from somebody that was born from, you know what I mean? Like, what's the, so, what's the, you see so the quagmire there? Defining, 
in defining our terms, I think yeah, we should also define our measurements. Okay. Okay. Um, you know, success in in this system, for instance, is people becoming millionaires actually success. Yeah. Uh, you know, is is somebody having the ability to be their own project the aspect of freedom, or is it the illusion that you give somebody to perceive their freedom so that you know it's the carrot on the stick? Yeah, and I and think if we were being honest and fair, I think it's more of a carrot on the stick. Absolutely. What's what's the structure surrounding this? people being their own project. Well, if you look at this world where like say a TikTok star or a YouTuber, like there's this transition well, into the individual. I, I'm sorry. Go I, ahead. I, I think it's actually directly related to debt. Okay. So we, we indebted the individual as opposed to indebting the state. Right. Mm. And so, and then the individual is now their own project with their own debt. It's kind of this, it's kind of this nationally nationalistic thing wrapped up into the individual you know, you're indebted, you have to pay off your house, you have to pay off the car. But if you do, you achieve these things, you have ownership, right? And we, we attach these ideals to that. And so I think it's really derived from, from the debt based economic system that we have. Yeah, that's well put, especially a collapsing system like we have, what better way to transfer all the guilt and all the responsibility out of the individual, instead of the people that have built this who made the, who made the choices? Right. The few collapsing great monuments. George. What's that, Paul? We have a collapsing system. I, I wasn't aware. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, it appears things are not as strong as they seem. I mean, it's just like, you know, people have been saying, like, California is going to collapse. They've been saying that for, like, 60 years. Well, I think you've seen you a slow-motion train wreck there, right? Like, I, I would look for California. When you see what's happening with the energy there, the the – hostile takeover by by corporations that have taken over the state i think the next shoe to drop there's gonna be the water i think you're going to see the same thing happen with energy right now across the world the next shoe to drop is water everything that's happening with energy right now guess what it's coming from water because the the uh the uh privatization of all resources is what is slowly coming down the pipe and you're seeing it with energy you're seeing it with food and the next you're going to see it with water well, and expanding upon that, you know, California was always said it was going to fall off the cliff, but the United States system said, oh, you're going to fall off the cliff too. By any, by all rational means, if you're studying economics, supply and demand, all these things that we kind of hold its tenets to economics, like in order to kick the can down the road, you would have to just exert untold amounts of control. Well, fast forward 20 years and it's like, oh, you exerted untold amounts of control. <laughs> And now all of a sudden we're in a system where, you know, people are now able to see that, oh, yes, it is this massive network of money and a debt-based system that embroils every single country on the planet that is actually the driving thing behind this. And there actually are a small few group of players in that system who dictate policy for the greater whole of people. That's kind of a novel thing. You know, it's always been conspiracy theory prior to the advent of the Internet. But now, you know, via public records and right. a bit of uh, analytics and you're there. I mean, you can you can see where the money moves to support all of this, all of these infrastructures, all of these policy changes, all of these regulations. Who's funded in what country? 
you know, what, what packs and super packs or their equivalents in other countries are paying for all of the, the media coverage are paying for all of the, all of the, you know, all of the propaganda. I, and it, it's a pretty telling tale. I don't think we need to go too deep into it because if yeah, you just do, do the that. research, you get there. Yeah, I you're, think you're right. No, I think, <laughs> I think, I think we have a legitimate point right here. See, I, I think that Paul thinks a lot of this is conspiracy theory. And I think that, Ben, you might be able to point out some some areas that are in contention with what Paul thinks. Paul, would you be so kind as to share some of the stuff that maybe you think may not be accurate? About Ben's statement? Yeah. Or, or like, well, I mean, I, I just don't think, like, there's this puppet master. Or, no, there's you know, not a there, puppet master. You know that there's a few puppet masters out there that are you know that are controlling how everything works i think you know if you look at like you know human needs, supply and demand you know that a lot of these things are predictable which then would kind of like you know lay waste to the conspiracy theory that you know that there are a few things that are controlling society um it's because, not a singular cabal for it, it, it's it, it's a it's let's, a group let's, of let's make it known that yeah. Ben was the first person to use the word cabal <laughs> on this podcast. Hey, well, you know, <laughs> I'm just trying. I'm just trying to frame things properly. So you know, it's not a singular group of people, but it, it is. You know, now we do have the records to and show that where the money has flowed from, where the people stood on stage and initially said that this should be the policy of the world you know we have that chain of custody of events and so when you can start to derive those chain of custody then you have to look at the greater situation and go okay well yeah there is a smaller group of people controlling most of what's happening in the world and then if you think about it logically and you and you look back to the times of kings and rulers and emperors and you say well would the people who accumulated all of that wealth and all that power just let it go? Well, the answer is no. We know humans, right? And so what sort of what sort of things would they institute in order to maintain and propagate their power? Well, you would have things like an international banking system because now you can incur debt to people at exorbitant rates. Uh, and oftentimes of strife and need and struggle so you can gouge them while you're also funding their competitor in whatever thing that you might be embroiled in. And now we have records that show us that there has been massive investments on both sides of just about every conflict that we have decent record keeping of. Uh, to show that people play both sides to make a lot of money it's it's a it's an age-old practice at this point and the people who well, employ well, that practice huh i think i think history has shown when it comes to like conflicts and 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 like financial institutions um you know funding both sides i think it's you know a lot of that is just you know hedge betting and it doesn't and, matter and, though, but it, it still has the same net effect is that they make more money and consolidate power. That's well, the whole idea but, behind the hedge. Right. But there's going to be a loser. And so do you want to be out there with, you know, a hundred million dollars with the person who loses, or do you want to be out there with a hundred million dollars on both sides? And which is why, that, which, which is, is why, and, 
and knowing that the person who wins is not only going to pay his $100,000 back, but he'll also cover the debt of the person that he just defeated. Exactly, which is why you have, you know, uh, media companies. The There's there's six controlling companies from 90% of the media that's broadcasted around the planet. And so now you have the consolidation of power through, you know, the distribution of resources and information. Uh, and that's why now all of a sudden, you know, uh, in 1920, 100% of the GDP ar- across the globe was from uh, commodities. 23% of the GDP in countries today is from financial services. It's speculating exactly. on all of this stuff, right? You know, so there's there's an articulable connection between all of these things. And that connection is, is that there is small groups of people. There's not a singular individual. That's not a singular cabal. It's not anything like that. There is competing interests of very concentrated resources of power that have their own idea of what the future should be. And we are actually, I think, seeing the contention of quite a few of those systems of power coming to a head right now. Yeah, I would look if just taking Ukraine, for example, like why, how much money has the United States taken from the taxpayer in the last year? Like I don't know, like a hundred billion dollars out of more the, that. Pay, a lot yeah, more, more than that. that. Probably seven hundred. Yeah. I I don't know for sure, it's but I just keep seeing these hundred. Yeah, I see. I keep seeing these billion dollar packages and outrage and outrage, but it gets suppressed. Like, why do we have people in Flint, Michigan, with no clean drinking water, but we can take a hundred billion dollars that hasn't even been appropriated and just send it to a foreign country that we have no business being in? Like, what? And then now interest rates over here go up. Like, why are we cite like that just well, fits the example of here's this group of people that want to pay for something. Okay, let's use their money to do it and we'll buy that. And then if we win this land, we'll take the resource underneath it. If we lose, fuck it, it's not our money. Well, well, and to fill in that picture even more, you have you have the people who are saying, Yeah, we're gonna do this, and the people who they're taking the money from, but in between there they're profiting because they're invested in the the companies who are producing all of the military equipment. They're invested in the banks. They're invested in all of these things along this pipeline of of supply that's needed to enable this type of behavior. Yeah, I would say what you're saying in Ukraine is a real-world negotiation between the powers. That's why you see, like, we'll use nukes. No, fuck you, we'll use nukes. These are the big boys sitting at the table discussing the supply chains for the next 100 years. And it's think right. of mafia families. They're sitting down. Go ahead. You know what? I will murder all my people. Go ahead. It's the, you know what? I don't yeah. fucking care. Like that's what they're saying right now. And like that's why there's money moving back and forth. That's why there's talks of nukes being back and forth. That's why there's all this blow up of people and I like you can see the pieces on the board moving. Like like okay, well, and fucking Yeah, and you also see the explosions of 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 excitement in other locations too. Yep. You're yep. seeing the reemergence of, you know, older feuds like Armenia yes. and Azerbaijan uh, with Turkey, obviously, a player in there. You're seeing, you know, Tajikistan and Kazakhstan and the ethnic dis- uh, distribution there. Being, you have Yemen still happening. You have Somalia. You have, uh, you know, things breaking out down in Argentina. Venezuela just is going through another hotspot. So I think... Be, and I, I think this happens whenever you see power structures start to wane, right? Yeah. 
if, as soon as you see, well, daddy doesn't have his finger on, on everything. Maybe I can get away with something. That's the first time the kid's going to try to get away with something. You know, daddy's preoccupied. Well, here we go. You know, and you are talking realistically, we're talking 70, 80 years of kind of global oppression in a sense. And look now, at the, yeah. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, look at how fast the transition of power went from the queen being dropped in the hole to the king being signed. Like traditionally, when the monarch dies, there's chaos. And isn't mm -hmm. it interesting that the the uh, Commonwealth was locked down the hardest during COVID? Australia locked down, Canada locked down. Like they knew she was going to die, and they know that not everybody loves that guy as a king. And traditionally, Canada. If they didn't have Justin Trudeau or their their WEF people in there, like, why isn't Australia going? What the fuck do we need a monarch for? They just died. Let's cut all our stuff. Canada, look, why do we don't we don't need them anymore? Like, that's why you're seeing so much threatening going on. Like, oh, yeah. the people in positions of authority know Canada doesn't need them. Australia doesn't need the Queen. Like, what the hell well, do they raises, need them for? It raises a question that people never really ever thought about before. Right. Right. They're all of a sudden they're like, oh, I had a Queen. How the fuck do I need a monarch? <laughs> yeah, right. Well, that question hasn't been asked in seventy some years in a lot of these countries. That's a dangerous question, historically speaking, right? So, yeah. And like, is is there? You know what? I talked to a gentleman yesterday who was saying that he, regardless of what you think of the queen, watching the funeral was amazing because of the symbology. You know, they're performing a ritual that hasn't happened in, in seventy years, and and right. or and when it did. They follow almost to the T the same method that happened the last time the monarch died. So you're getting to get a snapshot of what happened. Yeah, and it's yeah. it's culture fascinating. And to, yeah. Of culture, culture and religion. And, religion. Right. and that, that begs the question of like, you know, when a queen dies, does that wipe out the debts of the people? Was there normally a jubilee? Like we don't we don't get to know that part, but maybe, you know, they don't want you digging too deep into that, you know. And I guarantee you there's some there contracts. Like there's yeah. stuff like that. This is good yeah. till I die. This is good till my daughter dies. Like it might go back generations, you know. You know, you have the East India Trading Company. Hey, are some shares supposed to change hands when she dies? Does this part of the family get something? Well, and you see have, this. They have they, well, you, they have all separate corporations. Yeah, that's right. I mean, within England, you've seen some of that. You've seen like you know, well, King Charles now is like handed stuff off to you know to his oldest son. Um, Catch you know. Free. That was yeah. That, well, I don't know if it's tax free. Probably, yes. but, um, without a doubt, you know. But you know, hand this stuff over to us because traditionally that's what happened. You know, it was he it was handed to him. He handed on to his kid. You know, one day his kid will be king and handed on to you know one of his kids. You know, I mean that's just you know that's yeah. how these things roll. He's, yeah, he handed off the people's they, property to him. Like, they just took all the people's yeah. property and gave it to his kid. Like, I'd be pissed off. I was predicting, whoa, whoa, whoa. I think we should have some of that back. Yeah, what's well, the divine right, George? One of the worst <laughs> arguments I've ever heard in my life is, we're going to do this because this is the way we've always done this. God, that thing bugs me. Like, wow, okay. Because everything changes. So we're just going to go against everything. All right. I got athlete. <laughs> <laughs> so I have an idea as Americans. I, I think that Prince Harry has moved over here. I think we should I think we should back him and take over the monarchy. Just take it over and then we can divvy up some of the parts for Americans. We can make it new America. 
See, when you start when you start playing the game, you become <laughs> you become part of you become the game. one of them. Yeah. Right, right. The the idea is you need to pioneer in the game, otherwise you fall into the same yeah, ruts. You can't beat the person that holds all the property. It's like the game of risk, right? You can't just jump in and win. Well, even if even if you do, you I mean, you think about it, you become that person. Yeah. It's even true. if even if you're the most altruistic philanthropic person, you still become that person in essence, because you just inherited all this stuff that was by and large forcibly removed from many, many hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. Yeah, you are you are entwined upon that. You know, you can probably try to make amends and you can give it all away and sure, but you're still a part of that thing. And even if you gave it all away, are you going to make things better? You're probably not because now you're giving it away under the impetus that, you know, I need to give it away to fix something. You're not trying to find a real solution. You're trying to fix past transgressions. And I think it becomes pretty untenable. Ultimately, that has to lead to destruction. Like if you think about where the king and queen are at, like, is crazy or is evil or is angry or is silly, whatever I think about them, the reason they're worth, like they are a product of all the decisions they've made. And a lot of those decisions were made to protect what they had. But it seems yeah. like you're slowly backing yourself into this corner, right? Yeah, eventually you run out of room. <laughs> right. And I and I think I think we're seeing that, you know, especially when you have the whole world changed probably a couple times since the queen took power, right? If you were to kind of break down, you know, the evolution of Western society. Um, and now all of a sudden you're throwing back this hallmark to older days where people were much more um, visually and viscerally oppressed. And now you're saying, hark, the new king, hail to the king, hail to the king. Now people go, whoa, 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 whoa wait a second, king? Yeah. <laughs> like I don't know. I need to actually think about this, and that's always been the bane of all monarchy, right? The disacknowledgement of of the power structure. Yeah, that gets back to what we were kind of talking about a few podcasts ago about just deciding not to play the game. You know, like you know what? I don't think I'm gonna. I don't think I'm gonna believe in that anymore. And it's weird. I, I recently saw a video of these two guys. And they were, um, it was pretty funny. They, they were at a protest or something. And like this cop came over to talk to them about something. And they were, just, they were talking about Taco Bell. And the guy's like, oh man, I love Burrito Supremes, man. I can't believe they're like $2 now. And the cop comes into the picture and she's like, can I talk to you gentlemen? And one guy's like, you know, I just, I used to like them, but ever since they changed some of the ingredients, I just don't like them anymore. <laughs> and the cop is like, I need to talk to you about what just happened. And the guy's like, you know, all I want is a good burrito. That thing's like $3.99, man. I just want to come home, maybe drink a beer. And the cop is just trying to talk to her, but she can't. Like, they won't, they just ignore her completely. And you can see this look of dumbfound. She's like, I need to talk to you now. And they're like, I don't, I like the tacos. What do you think about Jack in the Box? And they just had this conversation that completely excluded the cop. The video mm -hmm. cut off, but it must have been like five or 10 minutes of them just ignoring her. And then in the end, it was like, you have a choice to participate or you have a choice to talk about things. You don't have to do it. It made me think of what you were saying kind of about, you know, the different projects going on and the idea to change the game by not participating in it. Right. Well, you know, that's actually your constitutional, right? Most people don't know that if a cop comes up to you and asks you questions, unless you're being actively detained and you're on public property and you're not on private property, you don't have to say anything. <laughs> you could talk about Taco Bell all night long. <laughs> You don't have to acknowledge the cop. 
which is, you know, not to say that you're not going to have negative repercussions from that just because of the way, you know, well, the world is these days. And, um, you know, it's uh, there's wild videos out there. I just recently found this where people, you know, are using their Fourth Amendment rights and, you know, I don't have to produce ID because I'm, you know, I'm not I'm not detained. And all the and, and the reaction on, you know, many police officers clearly did not even know what the Fourth Amendment is. They probably only knew what the first and second were, which kind of the looks of it, because their reactions went from, oh, my God, I can't believe somebody's disrespecting my authority to eventually they got corrected to, oh, crap, I hope I don't lose my job. Which is a wild range of emotions if you think about it, right? <laughs> I'm God. I'm nothing. Oh crap. Oh jeez. What's your take on that, Paul? What you, you're being quiet over there. What's going on? Um, just I'm just kind of listening. Just, nice. I'll be nice. great back. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I don't, Paul. What do you think about in today's world? Do you think? that more or less people have purpose-free friendships. All right. So you got to have to define purpose-free friendship. Well, so, so what I mean by that is like, I can even see it in myself sometimes. Like it seems that the deeper you go into like money or the more you climb up the, 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 the ladder of the corporate ladder, it seems like the people you hang out with, are people that you're doing business with. Like they're not your friends because they're your friends. They're not somebody that you knew in high school that you just call up from time to time to talk about how you see the world. They're friends that you call up to talk about which particular product you're going to pursue. It seems to me that maybe it's just getting older or maybe it is that I don't have a whole lot of friends that it seems to me that I'm beginning to see more and more people like that. Yeah, well, I mean, you're talking to somebody who also doesn't have a lot of friends, <laughs> um, you know, and and, you know, and I have a business partner that I I guess I would consider a friend, but we don't do any like friend type stuff, you know. Um, yeah. And it's been my partner for like 10 years now. Um, but like we don't attend each other's birthday parties or, you know, freaking celebrate life. You know, um, you know, like big things that happen in life for both of us. You know, I mean, I mean, I, I can see that. Like, well, more and more people are are like spending more time, you know, working, and and so like the people that they associate with usually tend to be, you know, those who are, you know, with within their particular field or whatever they're doing, um, and so as as society as we work more and more and more we have less time to build friendships that you know aren't like a part of what we're doing every single day you know for most of the day yeah so i, I mean was... i could i could see that being you know a thing but yeah like, purpose -free I friendship i don't think i've ever heard of that yeah, I, I i don't know if it if it really explains the term well does that kind of make sense to you ben what, what were you defining? So we were, I was talking, I was asking Paul, like it seems to me at least that the more, the more people work 
and the more we move down the road we're moving down and i think it's i think it is a symptom of the sickness that's kind of been plaguing our country and other countries and it's it's this idea of the subject kind of becoming a project like you the individual becoming your own entity i think that that creates less capacity for um purpose free friendship and what i mean by purpose free friendship is that like you and me and paul get together and we talk um however there are lots of people that you only talk to someone because they can do something for you sure. especially the higher you go up on the corporate you. ladder and stuff like oh, that yeah yeah that's a fair chunk of my communications <laughs> um <laughs> so i would say I would frame it in the way that I've noticed there has been to exactly the process you're speaking to. There's been a removal of community. Mm. Um, and whether that community be those friendships or be the local community, your neighbor next door for the cup of sugar type idea, um, you know, we're, we're being continually moved away from community and into this monetization of, of things, right? You've got your DoorDash driver who's delivering your Walgreens stuff these days. You, so where we've put a price on these things, essentially, um, via our use of technology. Uh, and I think that by and large, because there is this, you know, this side hustle economy, which is taught to people, you know, especially from an entrepreneurial perspective, you know, make your side hustle your passion and become an entrepreneur and all this bullshit. Not that it's bullshit. There, there is some truth to it, but it is kind of bullshit in the, in the sense of it leads people down a, 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 a disingenuous path. <clears throat> and that disingenuous path is is you approach your life in that way uh you will find yourself quickly surrounded by nobody in awful lonely because the reality is is our our relationships are much greater than any sort of monetary uh price tag you could put on it um regardless if that's just the guy you say hi to on the street corner uh, you know, putting a price tag on that is you, you can't because there's going to be that one day because he's seen you for 20 years that he says hi and just the right day at just the right time when you're having a terrible day and you're like, you know what, there is consistency in the world. There is actually genuine people in the world. I know this guy, even though I don't know him, but I've known him for 20 freaking years. And he's always said hi to me. He always brings a smile to my face and damn it, I hate the world today, but I love that guy in the corner. <laughs> That's you know, community. Go ahead, Paul. Yeah, um, I was having this conversation with some other friends of mine, um, not work-related, um, a few years ago about, like, at some point, you know, we started, you know, like, becoming this these people where, you know, being busy with work was like a badge of honor. Mm -hmm. You know, where, like, hey, oh, I... Yeah. I I work 80 hours a week, therefore, like, you know, like <laughs> my social status should be, you know, like improving here because I work 80 hours a week. And so, you know, the, it's like people are really proud to say that, you know, well, I, I, I've been so busy lately. I'm just really busy. I got all this stuff going on, whether it really amounts to anything or not. You know, it, it's just about like I'm doing something. Um, and, and and maybe you're not. Well, and, 
Yeah, go ahead, man. Can I hop in? Um, yeah. So I think this has a lot to do with attention. Uh, because, you know, there's a similar kind of thing that I remember from my childhood, and I've observed it just from family members growing up and witnessing it. But maybe you guys remember it too, is, you know, whenever the kid broke his arm in class, all the attention. Now, every kid wanted an ailment. Every kid wanted something where they would get all of that attention. Uh, and, it, you know, it, it had nothing to do with the homes that people came from. It was it seemed to be pretty, you know, across the board because I felt the same way and I had a decent home. And it was like, man, what can I do to have attention? And, you know, and kids manufacture shit to have attention. All sorts of crazy things. I remember all sorts of funny things, you know, you know, and you would get that attention. And I don't think we grow out of that too much. I think a lot of this is driven by the need to get attention, uh, you know, whether that's, you know, the, the parental attention, which a lot of psychotherapy is attached to, or, you know, the, the attention of our peer groups or things like that. I think that we, we do, we like to be recognized because there is effort exerted. And when we exert effort, you know, it's nice to be, it's nice for somebody else to say, hey, I see your effort good effort. I mean, you know, that's what team sports are built on, right? You know, I, I think we have a lot of, you know, as above, so below pieces of evidence that we could look at throughout the scope of society that would really kind of, you know, put this into a greater perspective. But I think a lot of it is derived from attention. Yeah, it makes sense. What I mean, if you think about the fruits of that 80 hour work week, it is to get more attention. Like, look at what I bought. Look at where, look at my title. Look at me. Yeah. yeah I mean, the conversation that I was involved with before wasn't about like, look what I bought. It was more about, um, you know, like I'm doing something. Yeah. You know? Acknowledge and, me because of how hard I'm working. He's such yeah. a hard worker. You know, right. we're, we're, we had, you know, 10 presidents ago, you know, there was a guy going, hey, I got to bring America to the 30-hour work week. Like, this 40-hour work week thing is is not for Americans. We need more leisure time. We should be able to do everything we want to do in life and only have a 30-hour a work week. And, you know, fast forward, you know, almost 100 years from when that guy said that. And, um, you know, here we are, like, you know, spending so much time working that, you know, so many things in our society are just getting passed over and neglected. Yeah, those guys tend to get shot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it's a wild thing, too. You know, the computers had a similar promise, remember? The advent of computers was everybody's not going to have to work anymore. You don't need to sit there and file all day. You have a database. All of a sudden, you got 20 people maintaining a database at 80 hours work in a week. So how, does that, <laughs> how would that apply to the Libra project? Well, so just because that's a, how a lot of enterprise technology is built, it doesn't mean it's how it has to be built. So just like science, there's been evolutions in database systems and maintaining these things. And <clears throat> you can get to the point where they're very much highly automated um, <clears throat> in a lot of different regards. And then mostly what it comes down to is if you're able to put all of the information that you put into the database in a consistent manner without error. Uh, and that's the bigger thing. And so what you do is you basically just have these systems that their whole purpose is to translate data from, say, 
uh, you know, the, the indoor vertical farm uh, setup and just put that data into the database in a very consistent way. And then you can go and then, you know, with all the automatic features of the database, you end up in a position where you're like 99.999, like five, six sigma to the point where you're actually, you don't have errors. Uh, you'll still get errors, but at that rate, you're at a point where it shouldn't detrimentally affect any system, except if you're talking something like a fusion power source or something like that. That's the only thing where you start to need greater and greater accuracy. Yeah. Gentlemen, I love talking to you guys. I am getting the wave down over here. My two hours is coming up, and um, I I got to tell you, man, every Sunday I leave fulfilled. So thank you both for that. I really appreciate it, and um, I got a lot of questions answered. So let me just start with you, Ben. What Where can people find you? What do you got coming up, and what are you excited about? Uh, BenjaminCGeorge.com, fully redesigned, completely filled out. Uh, and I'm hoping next week, sometime, George, whenever uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, sometime, uh, you'd be my first guest on the No Absolute Podcast. Let's do Thursday, man. I'm in. All right. Cheers. Okay. I'll, I'll shoot you some info. That'd be, dude, first off, if you haven't gone to BenjaminCGeorge.com, check it out. The new site is awesome. Paul, there's all kinds of landing pages except for yours needs a picture, buddy. So you're going to need to get a hold of Benjamin C. George so we can put your landing page up there. Yeah, sounds good. <laughs> yeah, my, my Paul picture is basically what this looks like. Yeah, you know? they put a B up there. <laughs> well, I think, you know, when, 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 uh, when I get a boost there in technology, then um, it'll probably all change. Well, nice. you know, you could you could uh, become the the queen supply of the world. We can make that happen technologically speaking. Yeah, I yeah. Think Paul, I think Paul has a plan for a picture. Didn't you have a plan for a picture, Paul? I I do, but um, you know, it continues to change. I can put something up. Didn't you have a specific person in mind though, from a specific movie? Um. Yeah, I forget. <laughs> I told you. Yeah, I that was. Did you remind me? Um, it was a person that I forgot the movie, man. I remember you telling me about it. No, no, and, no. It's gonna be the, uh, it's gonna be the uh, driver for uh, from um, uh, what's that show? Um, shit, I can't even remember the name of the Starsky show. Starsky and Hutch. No, not Starsky and Hutch. <laughs> but the, um, um, you know the three British guys that drive cars all around. Oh, that's right. Oh, Top Gear. Uh, Top Gear. Was the old yeah. show. Yeah, yeah, the old show, uh, the unknown driver guy. What's his What's his name? The um, the Stig. The, yeah, him. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be perfect. Yeah, just nice, nice bicycle helmet. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, awesome. no one knows who that guy is, right? We do now. <laughs> that right? <laughs> you're you're the psychedelic Stig. <laughs> That's so awesome. We gave him 12 grams of mushrooms. That was two hours ago. Let's see if we can find him. Stig? Stig? Oh, he's not here. Anybody know where Stig is? <laughs> that sounds like fun. 
would be fun. That, would, that actually sounds entertaining. <laughs> Give a guy in a bicycle helmet a whole bunch of illusions and just like, see what happens. You know, put a camera on him, a GoPro up the top. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> one on the chest, one on the head. Oh, it's classic. All right, gentlemen, I really appreciate it. Thank you for everything, and we'll touch base here shortly. And to everybody watching, thank you for spending some time with us. Uh, Hank, thanks for chiming in. And everybody in the chat, we really appreciate it. We'll talk to everybody soon. All right. All right. taking a moment to hang out with me in the true life podcast i truly appreciate it if you're taking some time to listen to this whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way 
I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge. And I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now. And it's been so rewarding to me that I just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.